The History Channel original podcast. The British, they didn't know how to fight in the forest conditions. Hundreds of people are dying. Hundreds of people are being taken captive. This is just sheer terror. Newspapers and broadsides and tavern talk throughout America become filled with discussions of Washington. Do you know that it was an American who led those troops off the field? It doesn't take a lot to see that this is a human being who is a compressed spring that's about ready to release itself onto the American scene. From the History Channel, this is Making Washington. I'm Andre DeShield. By the spring of 1756, the American frontier is a war zone. The French deployed their Native American allies, which included the Algonquin, the Napé, Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Shawnee nations, as well as others. Their goal is to ramp up attacks on British settlers. George Washington has been lured back to the frontier by Governor Dinwiddie. He's now a colonel in the Virginia Regiment. Washington is ordered to protect more than 300 miles of rugged terrain with fewer than 1,200 ill-equipped men. With an untrained army, Washington faces an almost impossible challenge. But biographer Edward G. Lengel says Washington is confident that he knows what needs to be done. Washington begins to think about the fundamentals of running a military force. And the lesson that we as Americans need to learn is that we need to be more professional. That is, he's going to have to find a way to turn his men into real soldiers. Here is General Colin Powell. And so he knew what it was to have discipline with an organization. And he was not a softie. He was a disciplinarian. He would have people punished. A primary concern is the number of deserters. Many of the soldiers in the Virginia Regiment are not vested in the cause they are serving. The pay is the lowest in the continent, and the regiment is poorly supplied. Army Colonel Kevin J. Weddell says Washington is not afraid to make an example of these men. You can't tolerate desertion. For the rest of the soldiers in the unit, it's a betrayal of your colleagues on your left and your right, because then they can't count on you. The punishments he meets out can be severe as hanging. But... He will sometimes forgive a soldier whose behavior has been previously commendable. And Washington's men take notice. You're sending the signal to the soldiers who didn't desert that our commander is a merciful commander. Just don't do this sort of thing. Pulitzer Prize winning author Joseph J. Ellis says Washington quickly develops a reputation as a demanding leader. He's a tough taskmaster and he tells you what he wants you to do. And if you don't do it just the way he wants you to do it, He's not happy. He's not um, hail fellow well met. He is a man of high standards that expects you to meet those standards, and if you don't, it will reflect on him. Washington drills the soldiers on sharpshooting, speed, and organization. He brings his own training and strict ethos to his regiment. His command of the Virginia Regiment is the shaping experience for his role as a military commander. It becomes an elite unit that is uh, like the Rangers or the Special Forces. The British have to acknowledge, and they do openly, that Washington has created 
for the first time in the history of America, a provincial force that is worthy of respect, that's every bit as good as what the British put into the field. But much to Washington's frustration, that acknowledgement is never formalized. Douglas Brayburn is president and CEO of Mount Vernon. He can't seem to get them recognized as a proper regiment. He can't get them officers' commissions in the British established regiments in North America. He thinks they've earned this, that Americans should be treated as second-class subjects is anathema to him. Washington wants to prove to the British that his regiment is ready for a bigger mission. In his mind, the only way to get control of the frontier is to attack the French stronghold of Fort Duquesne in what is today Pittsburgh. He begs his commander, Lieutenant Governor Dinwiddie, to send his regiment to attack. But when Dinwiddie won't authorize the plan, Washington is willing to risk anything, even insubordination. Author Peter Stark says this is typical of the young Washington. In his early 20s, as a young officer, he was not at all the George Washington we think of. He was stubborn, he was hasty. He's the kind of guy you wouldn't want to go up against in terms of willpower. Once he sets his mind to something, it's going to happen. Full of headstrong determination, Washington decides to take action. In doing so, he steps well beyond his station. John Campbell, Lord Loudon, a Scotsman. He has been appointed commander-in-chief of British forces in North America. He comes to Philadelphia, uh, and George Washington thinks, aha, this is my moment. I'm the colonel of the Virginia Regiment. I need to convince him of all of the extraordinary work we've done and convince him that we need to go on the offensive. Frustrated by unanswered letters, he arrives in Philadelphia without an appointment and barges into Loudon's headquarters unannounced. He lays out his strategy for defeating the French to an appalled Lord Loudon. Loudon hears him out and then sends Washington on his way. It's incredibly audacious for Washington, this junior officer, to come in there and try to speak to the commander-in-chief about what their strategy should be. It would be like a junior officer going to speak to the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Washington is an idealistic young man. He sees things as they should be, and he doesn't understand why other people don't see things the same way. He writes to his commander to plead his case. To Lieutenant Governor Dinwiddie, Honorable sir, we can't conceive that being American should deprive us of the benefits of British subjects. We are defending the king's dominions, and there can be no sufficient reason given why we who spend our blood and treasure in defense of the country are not entitled to equal preferment. This isn't the overambitious George Washington. This is a long frustration that had been developing over a long period of time. Washington is looking for an acknowledgement from the British that Americans are equal members of the empire, equally worthy of respect. He tries to work his way through the British political and military bureaucracy in order to get what he believes is right. And instead, he finds himself falling into a quicksand pit as the British stop him uh, from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. Again, Washington is denied by his British superiors. 
They continue to ignore his suggestions and requests. Yet, when just over a year later, the British attacked the French at Fort Duquesne, they used the exact strategy Washington proposed to Lord Loudoun in Philadelphia. This campaign succeeds in forcing France to finally abandon its claim to the Ohio country. It ends the fighting between France and Britain in the region. But Washington gets neither the credit nor the officer's commission he seeks. His response to that was not to feel that he had been rejected, but that they were stupid. They were allegedly his superiors. He felt superior to them. He resigns, never again to wear British colors, never to become a British officer. University of Texas historian H.W. Brand says, a different decision by the British Army could very well have altered United States history. If the British government had simply said to George Washington, you want a commission in the British Army, we'll give you a commission in the British Army. That might very well have done it because then his professional loyalties would have been with this institution of British arms. For him, it was a matter of honor, and we can date from that moment, I think, the birth of the rebel George Washington. Washington returns home, where he turns his attention to politics. In 1758, he decides to run for a seat in the Virginia House of Burgesses. He wins the election, and that same year, he wins a bride. Here's biographer Alexis Coe. So not many love stories start with dysentery, but this one does. He needed to go to the Capitol to see a doctor to get certain medicines. And through that, he was somehow connected with Martha Custis. They met a few times. It was a few weeks, a few months. And then all of a sudden, she's ordering a dress. At 27 years old, Martha was in a unique position in early America. Her first husband had died and his male relations had died. So she had control of a huge estate and she didn't have to report to anyone. They marry in January of 1759. The marriage to Martha is the single most important event in his early life, and it makes everything else possible. She was a catch because of the fortune she brought. He was a catch because he was a stud. The marriage to Martha transforms Washington's fortunes overnight. He becomes stepfather to Martha's two children, four-year-old Jackie and two-year-old Patsy. And he expands the estate he inherited from his family, a place called Mount Vernon. When he first acquires Mount Vernon, it's about 2,000 acres. When he dies, it's 8,000 acres, contiguous along the Potomac River. Martha brings to the marriage several thousand acres of land, along with 84 enslaved people. Historian Erica Armstrong Dunbar. Washington inherited his first slaves as a child. And over the course of his lifetime, he's buying and selling enslaved people. He's growing his wealth, growing as a farmer, growing as a slaveholder. In Virginia, the key was to get land, but land is worthless without labor. And uh, slavery was the dominant form of labor in that time. The Washingtons become part of the Virginia elite. It's an exclusive club, and they're expected to keep up. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Alan Taylor. 
Washington and Martha dress very well. They dress their servants very well. They are doing their very best to appear to belong to Virginia's governing elite, their top 1%. But the economics of farming under British law make running a profitable venture almost impossible. Washington finds himself frequently making excuses to his creditors. After five years of marriage, the Washingtons are deeply in debt. They owe over a quarter million in today's dollars. In Virginia society, the vast majority of planters were relatively cash poor. They owned their wealth in land. They owned their wealth in enslaved people. And Washington gets paid basically maybe once a year as an agriculturalist, maybe twice a year. He grows tobacco and sends tobacco to his consigner in London. Then that person uses that money to purchase the items that Washington has requested. And they charge whatever they want for it, the same way that they pay you whatever they want for the tobacco. And so he's stuck in this vicious cycle. No matter how hard he works, no matter how much tobacco he grows, it always turns out that he's further in debt. The worst fear he has is ruining Martha and the hopes of Martha's children. Even very wealthy planters like Washington chronically were in debt. And that this is critical. They weren't in debt to Pennsylvania merchants or New York merchants. They were in debt to English merchants. Washington's view is that the entire planter class of Virginia, him included, has been caught in this economic trap that these capitalists over there are sucking the blood of all of us. Washington feels deeply the unfairness of a system that's designed to ensure he fails. He tries out practical adjustments to improve Mount Vernon's production. But he's also thinking about ways to revolutionize the colony's economic structures. He's a man of his era. He's an Enlightenment figure. He thinks that human beings can make the world a better place than they've inherited that we don't have to do things the same way they've always been done. We tend to always think about George Washington as a president, as a general, but I think that if you asked him who he was, especially prior to all of that, he would tell us he was a Virginian and he was a farmer. He becomes a great innovator in agriculture. He develops the rotation of crops. He's drawing on a lot of English uh, methods that are cutting edge at the time, and he tries to incorporate this into Mount Vernon. Washington also sells grain and milled flour pioneering one of America's first homegrown industries. By the 1770s, his G. Washington brand is considered one of the finest in the colonies. He's transitioning to wheat farming and ultimately flour production as a way to get out of the British system, which essentially is stealing his profits from his point of view. You know, he imagines a different future. Uh, and that's really the whole experiment that we end up being a part of in the whole revolutionary era. But the real focus of his ambition is to own a vast amount of land. It's an ambition he's had since he was a boy. In Great Britain, the Washingtons could not have owned property. Went to noblemen. And when they came over in the 1600s, they came for land. They didn't mess around. And this is in his blood. The Washingtons are land hungry. George Washington, at age 14, picks up surveying instruments and teaches himself to survey. Surveying was a hugely important job in early America. George Washington is earning his own money and purchasing his own land by age 17. The whole point of the West was to acquire title to land, but hold on to it. 
and in 10 or 20 years, as the American population grew, that land would become more valuable. And this was the basis for more fortunes in American history than any other way of making money. If you have land, even if you are an ordinary person, if you have plots of land, you can grow your own food. You had what would be called independence. Washington's innovative ideas, from crop rotation to milling and selling his own grain, as well as his business plans to acquire as much land as possible, are soon undermined by a new British decree. In 1763, to avoid another expensive war on the frontier, King George III bans colonists from buying or settling any land in the West. Dartmouth College historian Colin G. Calloway. What it does, essentially, is to run a boundary down the crest of the Appalachian Mountains. Everything west of the Appalachians is Indian country. And that land is off-limits to British subjects. This just upset the plans of Washington and every other American who was thinking of the West as, by this time, almost an American entitlement. Washington owns about 60,000 acres of land that he acquired through his service for the British in the French and Indian War. But the land lies west of the new border with Indian country. It's now essentially worthless. Having had his ambition to be a great military man frustrated by British prejudice against the provincials, the rules seem to indicate that the British looked on Americans as second-class subjects. So if the British Empire isn't good for you militarily and it's not good for you economically, what else is there? This proclamation begins a decade of restrictions on colonist ambitions. It's followed by a slew of new taxes, taxes that will help Britain pay off its debt from the French and Indian War. These decisions receive a poor reception in the colonies. Boston was at the cutting edge of opposition to British law, starting with the Stamp Act. Everything that's paper, currency, newspapers, all being taxed. Yale University historian Joanne B. Freeman. This was a new kind of tax on goods that were in the colonies as opposed to things that were being imported. That shift, it alarmed Americans. The colonists are sending petitions. There's troops sent up to Boston. The colonists adopt boycotts against British goods. They complain that they are being taxed without representation by the Crown. There's a fury brewing. Will the Americans come to blows over this? On March 5th, 1770, Britain strikes the first blow in what will eventually become the American Revolution when a group of British soldiers shoot five colonists who are protesting. Three years later, Samuel Adams leads a band of rebel colonists to Boston Harbor, where they dump 342 chests of newly imported tea into the sea to protest exorbitant taxes. The event is known as the Boston Tea Party. Britain retaliates. The intolerable acts strike America like the blow of a hammer. The 1774 Intolerable Acts revoked the Massachusetts Charter and closed Boston Harbor. The colony 
can no longer govern itself. People in other colonies are very much watching what's going on there, and they're thinking, that could happen here. The cause of Boston now becomes the cause of all America. And that's when we see George Washington become a reluctant revolutionary. You could argue that the British Empire slowly built the man who would destroy them from the inside out. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed. Washington considered himself to be British. He wanted to be a part of that imperial world. But when that fell apart, it's the kind of thing where you could only hate something that you had loved a lot. In the fall of 1774, more than 50 delegates from 12 of the 13 colonies gather for the first time to plan resistance to the British crackdown on their rights. The meeting lasts nearly two months. The colonies have never been, before this period, very good at doing things together. I mean, they really are independent units. They only manage to act in concert when they're threatened. And the idea is if we coordinate our response, it will be more effective. The British won't be able to pick us off one by one. At the first Continental Congress, Washington is there with the colonists who would join him as future revolutionaries. Familiar names, including Samuel Adams, John Jay, Patrick Henry, and John Adams. The delegates are divided on how to proceed. Some want to keep petitioning Parliament, using the existing system to voice their protest. Others are pushing for more radical action. Washington is a believer that the British Empire intends to enslave the American population. He sees us an orchestrated plot in the sense that we no longer have control over our own domestic policy. Finally, the Congress agrees to an all-colony boycott of British goods a move designed to pressure the Crown to repeal their taxes and remove troops from Boston. They also write a list of grievances addressed to the King. Though revolution is still not a word uttered publicly, and many delegates hope for a compromise with Britain, Washington fears war cannot be avoided. Before returning to Mount Vernon, Washington buys muskets and military apparel, as well as a book on military discipline. It became pretty clear early on that Great Britain was not going to back down and that they were not going to meet the demands that the colonists put forth. And although that was always a frightful prospect to go to war, it's pretty clear that that was likely to be the answer. The following spring, Washington's prediction comes to pass. On April 18, 1775, Paul Revere makes his famous ride to warn rebel leaders Samuel Adams and John Hancock that the British Army planned to surprise Concord. The Minutemen and other militias then rush to organize. In the morning, at the battles of Lexington and Concord, the famous shot heard around the world marks the start of the American War of Independence. Though it is still disputed who fired that first shot, this decisive action resounds through history. Lexington and Concord shocked Americans. That really stunned them. What does that mean if your own government now 
is firing upon you. Until this point, most colonists were willing to say, if you could just wind back the clock, then all will be well. By the time the Second Continental Congress convenes three weeks later, the time has come to put down the quill and pick up the sword. The question is, who will lead the charge? We need a military figure to go up to corral events and, and really become a commander of some kind of an army, whatever that army is going to be. Washington, one of Virginia's delegates to the Second Continental Congress, shows up wearing a military uniform. It reminds people he has military experience. If you need a commander, look no farther. The role of commander for the colonies comes with very specific demands. They need somebody who will both be reliable politically, somebody who won't be at risk of trying to make himself a military dictator, but somebody who has the basic skills and knowledge to lead an army. And it's a pretty short list of men in North America who meet both of those requirements. The most eager of the candidates is John Hancock, a prominent Boston businessman turned politician. In many ways, he's the anti-Washington. John Hancock is a very vain man. He's somebody who is pretty shallow, somebody who is a showboat, somebody who does not understand his limitations. One of the most experienced prospects is Horatio Gates, a British-born veteran who'd served on the frontier, married an American, and decided to stay. He has held the King's Commission. He has been a commissioned officer. He's seen fighting, perhaps even more than Washington has. But Gates was not a Virginian. And a lot of people, including John Adams, understood that Virginia, which was the largest colony at the time, needed to be invested in the war cause. And the best way to get Virginia invested was to put a Virginian at the very top. Unlike the young Washington who strived for high rank and recognition, Washington's ambition is now grounded in his real belief in the just cause of the colonies. Here's author and Pulitzer Prize winner John Meacham. That complicated cocktail of public projection, of balancing private ambition with the greater good, was something that Washington did as brilliantly as any American ever did. General Colin Powell again. Washington fell in love with the country that was being created. And he was prepared to fight for it and die for it. I mean, there wasn't a large number of folks with the kind of stature that he had, if not him, who? On June 19, 1775, the Second Continental Congress makes their decision. George Washington will lead as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. Washington writes to Martha, if he has any hesitation at all about accepting the position, it is out of concern for her. My dearest, I am now set down to write to you on a subject which fills me with inexpressible concern. When I reflect upon the uneasiness I know it will give you, it has been determined in Congress that the whole army raised for the defense of the American cause shall be put under my care and that it is necessary for me to proceed immediately to Boston to take command of it. And so, some two decades after he was denied a British officer's rank, 
George Washington becomes commander-in-chief of the army in revolt against the empire he once served. He passionately believes in the cause. He believes that as a virtuous man, he must set all of his skills, all of his abilities, all of his resources at the service of his countrymen. But he recognizes whoever leads this army is more likely than not to lose his life, to lose his fortune, and to lose his reputation. This is not a position of glory. Author Nathaniel Philbrick. Washington always defined greatness as a willingness to do things not for yourself, but for others. And so every fiber of his being said he must do this. In a letter to Martha, Washington references once again his belief in providence as his protector. I shall rely confidently on that providence which is heretofore preserved and been bountiful to me, not doubting, but that I shall return safe to you in the fall. I shall feel no pain from the toil or the danger of the campaign. He knows his whole life is going to change. And the letters he writes home shows his own emotion. This is a moment when the normal screen or the curtain around Washington opens and you get to see who he really is. When Washington arrives in Boston in July 1775, there's little fanfare. With him is the man who will serve alongside him for the duration of the war. His name is William Lee, though Washington calls him Billy. Lee doesn't have an official military rank. He's Washington's enslaved valet. University of Texas historian Dana Ramey Barry. Washington purchased William Lee in, in 1768. He was probably someone that knew Washington better than almost anybody. Billy and Washington had an intimate relationship in that Billy combed his hair in the morning and put out his clothes and all this other stuff. He is known for organizing George Washington's life, his papers. William Lee, unlike the majority of other 18th century enslaved people, has been in some ways given a little more than a footnote in history. According to historian Fritz Hirschfeld, Lee, quote, rode alongside Washington in the thick of battle ready to hand over to the general a spare horse or his telescope or whatever else might be needed. Billy Lee, as we've come to think about him, is one of the heroes of the American Revolution. Washington's orders from the Continental Congress are to force the occupying British troops out of Boston. It's a nearly impossible task to pit a handful of scrappy colonial militias that have never fought together against the world's greatest military power. Not to mention the fact that about a third of the colonists remain loyal to the British. When he gets up to Massachusetts, it confirms all of his most desperate uh, thoughts about the militias. They come and go as they please. They don't want to be under the discipline of a regular army. I mean, the guys with guns. It was not a trained army. We have this vision of the American Revolution, is that we had an army and they had an army. We didn't really have an army. We had a lot of state militias. By comparison, Britain has 32,000 experienced troops, unlimited funds, and 270 ships. The colonies have no navy. This army of misfits is at once Washington's only hope and his greatest liability. 
he has to figure out how to join these people together in some kind of a way in which they can fight this great empire. Not only are the troops ill-prepared, their numbers are also far less than Washington is anticipating. He is expecting 20,000 men and 10 tons of gunpowder. He gets a fraction of that. Trying to put together an army overnight is impossible. It took the British Army a century. I mean, like, where do you dig the latrines? Where do the hospitals go? These are all, like, things that are routinized inside a British manual. We have none of that. And we just got a bunch of guys who basically showed up to fight for a few days and figured they're going to go home. Once a headstrong and untested young soldier, Washington now takes command of his army, 21 years to the day after his crushing defeat at Fort Necessity. He's taken on a task that he knows is going to be perhaps impossible to defeat the British Army and Navy. And he's there to do it. And he's committed. If you command the army that declares war on the empire, you better win. Because if you don't, there's no telling what's going to become of you. The Declaration is a rallying cry, but it was an act of treason. If they captured him in New York, they would have put his head on a spit. And that's all you would remember about George Washington. Benedict Arnold has betrayed not only Washington, but his country. That's next time on Making Washington. Making Washington is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Daniel Turek edited and mixed this episode with assistance from Max Michael Miller. Washington was originally produced by Rail Splitter Pictures for the History Channel. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.